What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner. What I do here is a daily live stream, and I put it out in podcast form. If you want to take part in the live streams, you can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner, or better yet, go to the telegram t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Also, check out the website bitcoinandmarkets.com. Sign up for the free tier, get notified of all my content, get a free weekly newsletter. And there you can also become a full member and support me for $5 a month and support this unique perspective in Bitcoin. So I have been in Bitcoin for almost 10 years. I have an economics and business background as well as a military career. So I have a unique perspective, a unique outlook. And if you listen to this whole episode today, you'll get a taste of that unique outlook. So I want to thank everyone that supports over there on BitcoinAndMarkets.com. If you're new, I hope you enjoy the episode. Subscribe, like, share, check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com. Okay, let's get into today's show. Good to see you here today. Hope you're all doing well. Uh, some big news in macro uh, hit overnight. The BOJ or Bank of Japan, they increased their uh, yield curve control window. So we're going to look at some charts. We're going to cover some of that stuff. If you're joining over on Twitter Spaces, just a dis, you know, a heads up, Twitter Spaces likes to crash on me, even though I have a brand new phone, brand new Samsung running this, and uh, it likes to crash on me. So if you want an uh, unadulterated experience, go over to Telegram, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Trying to build up the community there. We're getting really close to 300 subs. Lots of back and forth, you know, chatting and commenting. I post most of my stream of consciousness for the day over there on Telegram. So uh, join the group there, trying to get up to 500 subs. So we'll see. Also, all right. So today we're going to be talking about Japan, Bank of Japan, yield curve control. And I did write a piece on this. So first, let's go over what happened. Then I'll go and read a article or a post, a blog post that I wrote about a year and a half ago on yield curve control and why I am skeptical of yield curve control. So uh, we're going to start off looking at the charts that I posted in Telegram. I'll try to verbally describe them as well as I can for guys over there in spaces. If you're in Telegram, I posted this big uh, message with six different charts. We're going to look at I guess let's just go top to bottom. That will be the easiest way to not be confused. So the first chart is showing U.S. Treasury yields with the Fed funds range, you know, uh, as reference in there. And you can see that the 10-year did pop up quite a bit today. All of all the longer bonds popped up. But as you go shorter and shorter dated, which is interesting, there was less reaction to this BOJ news. Um, so there was a, what what would, it's not a steepening, it's a, <laughs> I mean, it is a steepening because the longer dated bonds are going up faster than the shorter dated bonds, but we're in an, in an inversion. So it wouldn't be a steepening, it would be a flattening actually, because we're in an, in an inversion. So we did see some yield curve flattening, which is uh, very interesting. However, the longer bonds are still, very far under the Fed funds target range. So the 10 years sitting at 3.67. It has moved quite a bit 
in the last week or in the last few days, I guess, the last couple trading days. So a lot of people are starting to say, oh, look, the 10-year has bottomed and it's going higher, guys. We're going higher. The Fed is raising rates, don't you know? The Fed is pushing rates higher. Come on, don't you know? Well, if that's true, how come the 10-year got to where it is? How come the two-year was below the Fed funds uh, target range? If they can control interest rates, it doesn't make any sense, right? So you, you people will say the Fed can control interest rates, but they don't explain how it got to the point that it's at. You just continue, people continue with this um, illogical uh, belief system that somehow the Fed is controlling rates, but only right now and into the future are they going to control rates. No, let's not look at the 10-year being 75 basis points under the Fed funds range. Let's not look at that. Let's just, oh, the 10-year is going up today because the Fed's in control. You know, it just, uh, that obviously you can tell it, it ticks me off because it's just so crazy to me. Uh, the two year did just come back into this Fed funds target. But if you look at uh, some other rates, which we'll do here in a second, like the two year uh, or the four week, sorry, the four week. The, so that's the one month treasury bill. Um, it is going the opposite direction. It's actually falling today where these longer bonds are rising on this news so the next chart i have uh let me pause here for a second so guys on twitter spaces holy cow we got a lot of people in here thanks for joining uh ansel linder bitcoin and markets spaces tends to crash on me so if you want the best experience join us on telegram t.me forward slash bitcoin and markets um we're going through some charts here we're then we're going to look at what the bo uh the boj did with the yield curve control and then i'm going to read a piece uh that i wrote about a year and a half ago on why I'm skeptical of the whole idea of your yield curve control. All right, so we're taking a look at the 10-year right now, and it did break downward sloping trend line, but you can see in this gray box uh, that this is where most of the resistance will be felt. So I'm, I, can, I would not be surprised if the 10-year rallied to about 3.9%, found some resistance, and then continued its trend lower. As we go into recession, yields fall because people are fleeing to safe and liquid assets. So we shouldn't, I mean, everyone's talking about recession, recession, recession. Well, if that's the case, then you would expect yields to fall. Yields fall not because of what the Fed does. Yields fall because there is a huge demand for safe and liquid assets. There's a huge demand for cash equivalents and liquidity because the treasuries give, well, let me explain it this way. So yesterday on the show, I explained how yields could be so far below the Fed funds range, so far below inflation. Uh, I uh, reacted to Marty Bent and Matt Odell talking about who would buy a treasury that's yielding so much below inflation. Well, it's because there's extra utility that you don't see. Okay. You have to assume that the market is rational. And so if the market's rational, that means there's some hidden utility that we don't see that's above and beyond the coupon payment, right? Um, and that is, it provides them more liquidity. It provides them more uh, security. So uh, you can take these treasuries and you can use them in the repo market. You can use them uh, for all sorts of things in the financial system that gives them more utility. That's just not priced into the coupon rate, all right? Um, 
So how did I get on that? Yeah, so if the long bond is so much farther below the Fed funds rate, then it's obvious that the utility gained from these, uh, you know, being a source of liquidity, that is rising. The, the value of that is rising. Uh, so I hope that was as clear as mud. <laughs> Let's go on to the next chart. And this is of the Japanese yen. And guys, listen on spaces. This is, I'm talking about charts that I posted over on Telegram. That's another reason to join us over there is you get access to all these charts real time. I do, when I put them in the podcast step or when I put them, uh, these out in the podcast feed, uh, I do write up a nice big post on my website, bitcoinandmarkets.com. You'll find all the charts there and you can, um, you know, follow along with the podcast right on the blog post, associated blog post. But anyway, okay. So this is the Japanese yen hitting 131. Pretty dramatic fall here since the middle of October when it hit, uh, it, it was over 150, about 152, and now it has strengthened against the dollar down to 131. And of course, in the last 12 hours, it was a precipitous strengthening of the yen. All right. Next chart is of the Japanese 10-year government bond. I've talked about this a lot. I actually posted uh, a chart in Telegram 2 showing because Jim Bianco, you guys probably know Jim Bianco on Twitter. And he posted a nice long thread. It was very informative. And he used this one chart in there showing like this kind of cone where the Japanese 10-year has been, you know, where the yield curve control window has been and how it has moved. Um, and I was like, man, that looks familiar. I went back and in June... On FedWatch, my podcast I do with Bitcoin Magazine, um, I posted pretty much the exact same chart. And I've never seen that anywhere else. So I don't know, maybe Jim Bianco's uh, watching FedWatch. But anyway, so back then I said, you know, yield curve control, they're not going to be able to contain this. Their MO is to, as soon as they think this is going to break or they don't want to hold it at this uh, level anymore, they will simply move the yield curve window. And we've seen that now this is the third time that they've expanded it. Um, let's go to a longer chart here. So if you go back to 2016 is when they started yield curve control. They're always above, uh, ahead of the curve in monetary policy. They're always kind of not innovative, but they are, um, you know, since they had their crash in 1990 and they started QE then, I think it was like 2003 or so. So they're a few years ahead of other central banks. And if you just want to know where the Fed is going to be in like three or four years, just look at what the Central Bank of Japan is doing uh, because we are all turning Japanese now. But anyway, so back in 2016, they set it uh, plus or minus 10 basis points. Then they increased it in 2018 to plus or minus uh, 20 basis points. Then again in 2021 to 25 basis points and now to 50 basis points. So they're continuing to widen this as they find out, right? As they are exposed as not being able to control rates. Imagine that. Imagine a central bank not being central because they're not. Well, we'll get into it on my on my blog post that I wrote. But... Look, adding yield curve control back in 2016 for Japan was admitting 
that QE didn't work, that QQE didn't work. So they have to add another thing of yield curve control, which is basically just like unlimited QE, right? It didn't work. It didn't work. And they thought it was somehow going to work this time. No, it's, they just keep going bigger, 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 a bigger bazooka, even though the the last one didn't work. Let's uh, try to fire a few more shots in there, right? Anyway, on this chart, that's the longer time frame here. I want, I pointed out a section in 2018 when they increased the window from 10 basis points to 20 basis points. And initially the 10 year Japanese government bond yield went up. It initially went up as if the pressure was relieved, right? And it went up, but then within a couple months, it started falling again. And then by the uh, middle of 2019, it was falling out the bottom of their yield curve control window. So in this case, maybe we will see the same thing because we have immediately, there was a surge in the yield, which is a fall in the price, right? The the 10-year Japanese government bond price is crashing today. The yield is surging. Uh, But perhaps this was just like the initial reaction where pressure was released from this. It's going to react to the upside, the yield is, and then it's going to fall dramatically. So we'll see if that's the case here. I'm just pointing out some previous examples of when they increased their window, what happened. All right. So let's go to the next chart. This is a real simple two-year versus the Fed funds range. And you can see that it's actually falling right now. This morning, it's at 3.78%. So it's almost falling below the previous Fed funds range. Because remember, the current Fed funds range is starting at 4.25. The one-year or sorry, this is the this is the one month bill, U.S. Treasury bill, is at three point seven eight. That's a huge discrepancy there. That must mean there is huge demand for this separate utility, which would be liquidity. That's how these rates stay below inflation and Fed funds range. All right, let's. Uh, that's the last chart. And guys on Twitter Spaces, I'm surprised Twitter Spaces has lasted this long. It usually cuts out on me after just a few minutes. So welcome to the stream, Ansel Inner Bitcoin and Markets. Join us on Telegram for a better listening and viewing experience. That's t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. All right, let's go into this article. It's a Zero Hedge article. And the headline is Corona NATO. Not enough to derail U.S. Treasury rally. BOJ shift sparks Japanese bond, sorry, Japanese banking bonanza. The BOJ decision to widen the yield curve control band was a surprise in the sense that it's been viewed as a when, not if matter. All right. Markets knew the BOJ eventually had to true up the 10-year point with the rest of the Japanese government bond curve. And I'm going to post this chart here, copy image. So this is what they're talking about truing up. If you look at a curve of Japanese government bond yields, it's a nice sloping curve, actually. It looks fairly healthy to me, except that one point where the yield curve control was happening. It was holding down this tenure. 
So this move can be interpreted as just rebalancing this point at which they are holding this uh, yield at. That doesn't make sense for a couple of reasons, but we'll get into that a little bit later when I read my my previous article. All right, let's go back to the post here. Sorry about that. Nonetheless, most everybody expected this move to come after the Corona term ended in April 23, with most expecting a phase in executed in smaller increments over time. But as Bloomberg macro strategist Simon White details below, the yen, not USTs, stands to be the main adjustment mechanism for the BOJ's policy shift with the currency facing potentially significant, significantly more upside, but the rally in USTs remaining intact for now. And we just took a look at those charts. That, that checks with what I'm seeing too. This time of year is replete with, well, blah, 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 blah. let's get to the better part. Um, Japan is, net, is a net capital exporter. So to appreciate the net effects of such a change, Understanding the likely behavior of Japanese investors in foreign assets is key. In a nutshell, rising short-term U.S. yields as the Fed raised rates has made USTs increasingly unattractive to them after excess FX hedging costs. Adjusting the net yield pickup for Japanese buyers of USTs by U.S. and Japanese inflation gives a close leading relationship with U.S. dollar Japanese yen cross. This has dropped precipitously this year, and if the relationship continues to hold, the yen annual growth would fall to five to ten percent. Okay, that's not what I wanted to talk about. Let's continue down. Rising yields on JGBs will pressure more Japanese capital to return home or not leave the country in the first place. Now, this is an important line. So let me read that one more time. Rising yields on JGBs will pressure more Japanese capital to return home or not leave the country in the first place. So this is a coupon-centric analysis, meaning that the only utility that people get from holding government bonds is the coupon. That is incorrect. Imagine you're holding a bond. You're holding a 10-year bond, okay? A Japanese 10-year bond. And the price crashes on you. You're screwed, right? Why would that attract more capital into an instrument that's falling in value? Yeah, the yield is going up, but you're not holding it necessarily for the yield. You're holding it for the value. You're holding it for the liquidity characteristics, if the value of your asset is crashing, why would that attract more capital into Japan? I think it will do the opposite, but there's several forces here, competing forces. All right, let's continue. But this will not likely be enough to unseat the rally in the U.S. treasuries. First of all, Japan investors have been net sellers of treasuries for most of this year, even as treasuries have rallied. Secondly, the tailwinds for U.S. Treasuries I noted in October that would likely trigger a rally are still valid. The Fed's hawkishness has very likely peaked for now. Rising recession risk is likely to spur haven demand next year. While central bank reserve selling, so this would be 
mostly USTs, which had reached extreme levels, is abating, as easing commodity prices takes pressure off commodity importers. All right. Treasuries also remain historically oversold, and positioning is very net short, while seasonality continues to be favorable. Finally, Nomura's Charlie McElliott points out that there is also an authentic macro story reality here on the yield curve control move from the BOJ, which is that prices are higher with growth, also above trend, while two, inflation expectations continue to rise, which is why yen stronger in my eyes was the best way to play short USD in 2023. Although this move happening ahead of schedule now takes some of the luster off of remain risk. Oh God, let me start that sentence over again. This is a lot of jargon and acronyms. I'm trying to read this out. (laughs) Although this move happening ahead of schedule now takes some of the luster out of the remain risk reward in the trade as this was the easy part. Okay. I think they have a typo in there, but anyway, so that's, that's basically what I wanted to say from this was that people are going to analyze this from a coupon centric point of view when you shouldn't analyze it as that. Okay. The next thing I'm going to read out is a post that I wrote back in May of 2021 and it's called yield curve control skepticism. <laughs> and you can find this on my blog at btcm.co. I post there very rarely. Usually when I post stuff that's about Bitcoin or can be related to Bitcoin, I uh, try to publish it with Bitcoin Magazine. And then the other macro stuff that really doesn't have much to do with Bitcoin, then I put it on other blogs like this one. So, all right, let's get into this. Yield curve control skepticism. Actually, before I start reading this, guys on Spaces, welcome. Holy crap, we got a lot of people. Ansel Linder, Bitcoin and Markets. Um, Twitter Spaces likes to crash on me. So if you want and the best experience, join the Telegram, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. You can also, when I open up the mic at the end, I do that on Telegram, not on Twitter Spaces. Um, also, all the charts and links and stuff that I talk about come through tw- uh, Telegram, not Twitter. So uh, there's that. Okay. Let's get going with yield curve control skepticism. Yield curve control is where the Federal Reserve or central bank uses quantitative easing to target a specific interest rate somewhere in the yield curve other than their benchmark rate. For example, Australia is targeting 0.1% on their three-year government bond rate. They accomplish this by being the buyer of last resort. If the market fails to provide enough demand to keep yields that low, the central bank will come in and buy as many three-year bonds as necessary to peg the rate at the desired level. Instead of a set amount of bond purchases every month in QE, it becomes a blank check. They will buy whatever amount is necessary. And something that struck me reading this very first paragraph was QE stands for quantitative easing. The word quantitative suggests preciseness, right? Like we're going to dial in the amount of easing that we have. Quantitative, it's going to be so exact and precise that we we can just turn this knob just a little bit and we're going to get a huge result from the market. You know, that's what quantitative easing is. It's it's more double speak, just like the term Federal Reserve is double speak, right? Quantitative easing is that way. Now, in this case, 
it's like they're using QE to peg a price. So then you could say, yeah, I guess it is quantitative in the fact that they are targeting a precise yield. But the easing that they do is not precise in any way. It could be 10 billion one month, 100 billion the next month, you know, whatever. It's so crazy too that people think that the Fed has so can so expertly control yields and can control the economy and do whatever they damn well please by pursuing a policy that's like super rigid and set like 20 billion in QE every month that's what we're going to do that's my quantitative assessment not 18 billion not 21 billion but 20 billion that's the quantitative thing that we're going to do every single month for 2 years perfect that's the perfect amount. It's it's crazy to think that that is what actually moves the market, what actually helps, okay? That the reason why they have a set policy and they follow that same set policy for a length of time is because the force that they're using is not quantitative, it's psychological. They're psychologically manipulating the market. Because people think it's going to be inflationary. People think it's going to be stimulate the market. That's why it's like this. It has nothing to do with quantitative analysis. It is psychological analysis. It should be PE, psychological easing. All right, let's continue. Many people consider yield curve control inevitable in the U.S. because they believe the Fed controls interest rates and the powers that be cannot afford to let yields go up, else they risk losing power as the overleveraged global economy goes bust. And of course, I wrote this back in 2021 before the Fed uh, Powell pivot to higher yields, but uh, I was stating this for back then in 2021. This post is going to examine yield curve control with a skeptical lens. It is going to happen. Is it going to happen in the U.S.? And if so, what will it look like? Yield curve control is already taking place in other economies like Japan and Australia, but it is not a given that it can happen in the U.S., the home of the global reserve currency. Central bank policy tools. The Federal Reserve has several monetary policy tools. It uses these tools in certain proportions, supposedly to control and centrally plan the economy. They include setting the benchmark interest rate in the U.S. called the Fed Funds Range, uh, Fed Funds Rate and Quantitative Easing, a.k.a. large-scale asset purchases, where the Fed buys U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities from banks in exchange for reserves held at the Fed. Another tool they have is forward guidance, something I call expectation management. The theory behind forward guidance is the Fed can telegraph its future actions to mold market behavior based on people's expectations. The Fed supposedly uses these monetary policy tools to provide stability to the economy. Specifically, their mandate is to maintain maximum employment and stable prices. However, what we get is one existential crisis after another. No discussion of QE and forward guidance should pass without emphatically stressing these policy tools have failed miserably. Perhaps one would respond to that that their policy tools are used to fight unforeseen market events like COVID by stimulating the economy. 
Okay, apart from not being the stated reason from the Fed, that hasn't been very successful either. All the Fed's actions have been utter failures to revitalize the economy or push inflation past 2%. And I maintain that, okay? Uh, CPI has gone over 2%, obviously. But CPI is not inflation, it's price index. So the prices have gone up, yeah. But inflation, money printing hasn't necessarily gone up, right? So take out all the supply chain problems. Would we get back past 2%? I argue we would not. So, okay, let's continue this. So all the Fed's actions have been utter failures to revitalize the economy or push inflation past 2%. Uh, and it's not just the Fed. These same policy tools in other major economies have failed too, like Japan and Europe. The Fed thus far since 2008 has been completely impotent. They have managed to help the banks mathematically avoid insolvency, but haven't actually fixed a single thing. Indeed, we could say they have made it impossible for the real economy to heal itself. With this understanding, we now must look at yield curve control. The Fed typically influences interest rates by setting the shortest term rate, the rate at the overnight window or the Fed funds rate. They can lower or raise this rate in an attempt to affect the rest of the curve. The way interest rates are transmitted from the short end of the curve to the long end is somewhat opaque, but large factors are supply and demand and, and the bank's need for marginally higher longer rates as a source of profit. Banks borrow short at low rates and lend long at higher rates. Banks will set their rates at a competitive market level that enables them to stay in business. Example, Bank of America will access capital at the short-term rate of 25 basis points and lend it out at five basis points in mortgages or business loans. This spread is necessary and natural and not a conspiracy to fleece the people. Bank of America then rolls over their short-term funding nightly, weekly, or quarterly, whatever they need, but always at lower rates than they charge for loans. If the Fed raises the short-term rate to 1%, that will tend to force the Bank of America to move their longer-term rates up to 6%. In our example, to maintain the minimum margin to stay in business. During quote-unquote normal times, this action will result in a nice positive sloping yield curve. However, there can be periods of inversion where longer rates drop below shorter rates. The most important comparison in this regard is the 210 spread. Every time the 10-year yield has dropped below the 2-year yield, it was followed by a recession within 18 months. Side note, you can see in the chart immediately above Okay, what am I talking about? Uh, let's skip that one. Okay, yield curve control is supposed to work by the central bank buying bonds further to the right on the curve with the intention on capping certain rates or even pushing them down. Academic economists at the Fed think this will stimulate the economy because lower rates means more borrowing, right? Nope. Lower rates signal tight money conditions and something wrong with the economy. In other words, it is a market signal that something is off about supply and demand for credit. Yield curve control is assuming to have two other benefits. One, cash is forced out into the economy, and that is expected to, two, stimulate the economy with inflation. Inflation will naturally 
push interest rates higher because you would hold a five who would hold a five year bond yielding one percent if inflation was five percent. Lots and lots of assumptions here. Central bankers think if they can cap rates at the short end of the curve, say zero to two years maturity, that will force up the long end due to inflation, resulting in a nice, healthy, positive sloping yield curve. So basically, this is telling you what why they think yield curve control works or how they think it works. They peg a shorter rate and it pushes up the longer rate. Um, in the case of Japan, they peg the 10-year. It's kind of the middle one, right? It is the first long bond. But they pegged the 10-year because they wanted to keep the whole curve down. They wanted to keep the whole curve flat because they wanted that much inflation. You know, they did QE, QQE, and now yield curve control. They tried to pull out all of the guns. They wanted to have that yield curve flat to cause inflation, but it never worked. It never worked. The only thing that brought inflation to Japan after 30 years of this profligate central bank policy was supply chains was shutting down the goddamn global economy for a year and a half. That's what caused the uh, quote-unquote inflation or prices to go up. Okay, let's continue. Problems with yield curve control. I take issue with yield curve control for different reasons than most economists. The textbook worries, like inflation, are not found in reality. (laughs) Just look to Japan or Europe where they actively do yield curve control yet continue to struggle with deflationary forces. The textbook is wrong because it is based on several wrong assumptions I addressed below. Assumption number one, uh, yield curve control is inflationary. I've written about this elsewhere in this blog, but we need to address this up front when talking about yield curve control. The central banks buy assets the same way in yield curve control as in QE. And we have seen that QE is not inflationary. Reserves held at the Fed are not money. They are inert balances used as a tool to doctor balance sheets. We are told by inflationists that the central banks use cash to buy assets like U.S. Treasuries, both in QE and yield curve control. But that is not the case. The reserves at the Fed are not cash. They are just inert balances on the Fed's balance sheet. These inert balances might look like a duck, but they definitely do not quack like a duck or walk like a duck. What we do know is that assets taken out of the productive free market into the central bank's balance sheet lose all economic benefit. Now, this is an important point. So let me read that again. What we do know is that assets taken out of the productive free market and onto the central bank's balance sheet lose all economic benefit. When treasuries are out of the economy, they can, sorry, when treasuries are out in the economy, they can stand as collateral facilitating money movements and healthy functioning of the current financial system. They grease the skids, as it were. However, when sitting on the Fed's balance sheet, all economic value is lost and the gears of the economy begin to squeak. Therefore, instead of inflation, we should expect yield curve control to add deflationary pressure to the economy as it withdraws the lubrication from the financial system. And this is exactly what we have seen in Japan. Everything they've done has actually caused their problem to continue. If they just would have gotten out of the damn way, they would have gotten out of their their slump in a, a few years, right? Back in the 90s. But they didn't. They continued to be more and more 
uh, invasive into their economy, and that hurt them more and more. It put more and more pressure towards a deflationary outcome. All right. Assumption number two, low interest rates stimulate the economy. This is one of the more pernicious myths in modern monetary economics. It is the central idea behind why the Fed moves the Fed funds rate around and participates in quantitative easing. However, this is the interest rate fallacy. Um, let me just read what Jeff Schneider says. I quoted him here. When money is plentiful, interest rates will be high, not low. When money is restricted, interest rates will be low, not high. When normal profits are expected to be robust, holders of money must be compensated for lending it out by higher interest rates. Thus, the same holds for inflationary circumstances. When nominal profits follow the rate of consumer prices during the great, uh, sorry, I messed that up. Thus, the same holds for inflationary circumstances where nominal profits follow the rate of consumer prices. During the great inflation, interest rates weren't low at all. They were through the roof, well into double digits and higher by 1980. At the opposite end of the Great Depression, interest rates were low and stayed there because, as Wixell wrote, the rate of profit was low and was expected to be low well into the future. High-quality borrowers were given as much money as they could want, while the rest of the economy was deprived of funds, liquidity, and safety, being the only preferences in what sounds entirely familiar. End quote. Good times lead to high profits and high interest rates. Bad times lead to low profits and low interest rates. Therefore, low rates tells us we are in bad times. They do not stimulate borrowing and economic activity. They actually do the opposite. Capping rates with yield curve control will not stimulate the economy. As we've seen over the last decade, low rates signal money tightness. Dynamic, healthy activity is hampered by market interference and the withdrawal of high-quality collateral in the form of treasuries. QE and yield curve control is economic bloodletting. Assumption number three, treasuries are held only for fixed income. This assumption is less explicit but does affect people's ability to understand the workings of the global financial system. The dogmatic view of why people own bonds is for interest income. While true, that is only a small fraction of the total usefulness of a treasury security. For one, owning treasuries can also fulfill regulatory requirements. Banks must hold a specific level of tier one capital, which is cash or cash equivalents like a U.S. treasury. Banks and large entities also use U.S. treasuries to access capital markets through repo or to lend the U.S. treasury for others to use in repo creating a chain of liability and rehypothecation. The web of ownership in funding markets is extremely complex and liquid in good times. Money needs to flow smoothly through this complex web of the financial system. The way it does that is with collateral. Cash flows one way, cash equivalents the other. But ask yourself, without the collateral, money can't move. So should the collateral be considered a property of the money itself? Like in Bitcoin, the blockchain is part of the whole. USTs are part of what the market uses as money. If money doesn't function the same without the collateral, in other words, the collateral is absolutely necessary for money to work, 
Isn't the collateral part of the definition of the money? I think it is. When central banks take collateral out of the system, so that is with QE, they take collateral out of the system. They buy the treasuries, quote unquote, buy the treasuries. They're taking that collateral out of the system. They are, in effect, taking money out of the system. Treasuries, therefore, while they are held by some as part of a fixed income investment, it is a very small percentage of their overall use as part of a cash position within the financial plumbing. What is the outcome of yield curve control? There is no question that the central banks can do yield curve control by buying long-dated bonds. It happens in many countries today. But it is a different question whether or not it will result in the aims the central banks proclaim. Remember, QE is also happening, but it has not resulted in what the central banks wanted. Specifically, getting recovery and inflation, credit creation off the floor. Forward guidance happens too. Powell famously went on 60 Minutes and told the public that they electronically print money, which, if true, would have resulted in unmissable, undebatable, massive inflation. Again, this hasn't manifested in the real economy. It has failed to revitalize anything. Current global conditions, once again, are slumping and threatening deflation. Yield curve control will result in the same failure. Sure, they will be able to keep certain targeted rates, uh, certain targeted rates, e.g. the U.S. two-year treasury under 0.25%. That was just an example. Um, but it will not have the desired effect. It will depress potential growth further, exacerbate monetary tightness, and will chase people even faster into alternative assets with promises of growth unburdened by massive debt. And so that was my line right there at the end about Bitcoin. Um, and you, you can, I think this is a holistic type of way to view the global financial system, to view the way that all these yields are working in conjunction with each other, how the, the financial system actually functions and where Bitcoin fits into the future. So the, further, the more and more that they intervene, the more QE they do, the more yield curve control they do, the more they actually harm the economy, the more they make certain low growth and low inflation. And so if you want growth above 1% or 2%, maybe, you have to change the money. You have to go to Bitcoin. Um, so that's where Bitcoin comes in. All right. I know this was felt like a longer episode today or a longer stream. I'm going to open it up to guys on Telegram. But as I do that, guys on Twitter Spaces, I am so happy that Spaces actually didn't crash today. Welcome. Check out t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. That is the Telegram. I'll open up the mic at the end of each show. I do these daily or almost every weekday. So join me over there on Telegram. All right. Any hands raised on Telegram? Also, I don't take questions over on Twitter Spaces because I'm juggling two things, and I actually couldn't hear you on Twitter Spaces the way I have it set up. So I can hear Telegram, and then I'll relay the questions over to Spaces. All right, Car, what's up, Car? Hey, uh, Ansel, can you hear me? Yes, much better today, man. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm on the AirPods now. So um, my my question is like. Um, 
So I noticed that the Japanese uh, government announced a emergency bond buying operation right after they right after they said they would adjust to the to the 50 basis points. And, and it seems eerily similar to like what happened um, in, in the UK when um, when their bond market crashed and they were like, oh, yeah, we'll fix it. But we're going to have a window of bond buying. Is, is this just like straight up like manipulation or I mean, why don't they just why don't they just set it like 50 basis points and just let the market, you know, find the bond value. So that's my question. Yeah. Okay, good question. I guess I didn't notice that, but that kind of makes sense a little bit because, you know, immediately if if they are just to open the window, then we could they could see some uncontrolled um price action, right? And so what they wanted to do, I think, was smooth out some of that volatility by raising or opening the window up, but also announcing an emergency bond buying thing so that they could somewhat smooth out that volatility. Um, what do you think of that idea, Carr? Um, yeah, that, that's a good answer. I was, I was thinking that too, but um, when, it, when it happened in England, I, my idea was it's almost like somebody needed to get out, but they needed to protect mm. the other people. And, and that seems like manipulation, like some big entity just needed out. They needed, they needed money. So I don't know what you think about that. Uh, I think this is a little bit different. I don't know. That's just my gut feeling. I, I'm not super into everything that went on with the UK gilts and everything that's going on here in, with Bank of Japan. Um, I think they said that it was like some pension fund that was getting margin called or something. Because, you know, when you have yields at uh, 1% or 2% for 15 years, uh, what happens is these pension funds, you know, they need a certain return, right? They need, I don't know if it's like between six and 8%. Usually they say like 7%. These pension funds need this uh, return to stay solvent. Um, so how do they do that when it's, when yields are say around 2%, they leverage up, they leverage up. And so when you have, then you have rates rising, what's happening, the prices of your bonds are falling and you get margin called. So that was, I think, what happened there in the UK is that their pension funds and some big money was leveraged and yields were going up. And so they had to come in and bail out those big pension funds or whatever. Now in Japan, they have a huge pension fund too. I'm coming at this from two different directions and it kind of leaves me in the same thing. I think they did this to smooth out some of that volatility. Uh, yeah, that's a good answer. I have, I have one more. This, this is just my opinion, um, just because I, I, I try to think about like, because the whole system is fake. You know, effectively, I feel like everybody on this fiat system is effectively at some form of yield curve control, meaning there are some big entities that are in on this game with the government. And um, I think in the UK, they brought the pensions along. You know, because it can't look yeah. like just the UK government's buying the bonds, right? They got to have some yeah. organic bidder, and that was the pensions, and they brought them along for the ride for the whole decade. And now it's almost like the pension. And I think it's it's going to happen in the US, and probably Canada too. And the Japan trade was just pure manipulation, where it was just free yen, carry that mm -hmm. over as some kind of organic bidder to the US ten year, and, and I think that free money trade is uh, is ending too. Yeah, yeah, great points. Um, 
really good point. The way I look at it is not necessarily, I wouldn't use the term fake. I would say the whole system is stagnant, right? That it's a credit-based system and the whole, there, there's just no growth left. We're too indebted. The debt burden is too high. There's no dy- dynamic, you know, innovation. There's no source of growth where you can pump more credit. Like after Japan hit 1990, that source of credit growth was done. So everyone moved to China and even the, the Japanese banks turned from uh, expanding credit in the Japanese economy to then expanding credit in the Chinese economy. And that's why the, China seemed to save the world there in 2008, 2009, because there still was this tiny little marginal ability to expand credit in China. But I think the whole system is not fake. It's just stagnant. And that does cause people to collude more. There, there seems to be less volatility because you can, um, you know, low growth, low inflation there, you get bailouts, Everybody is bailed out. Everybody is just pulled along with this stagnant, dying, decrepit, geriatric system that we have today. So when I look at that system and I compare it to Bitcoin, um, this is one reason why I think Bitcoin will continue to grow in the future. When you compare that old, decrepit, geriatric system to this new programmable economy, then, I mean, that's a no-brainer. And maybe the 60-, 70-year-olds that are still in control of a lot of these big money operations, they don't quite get Bitcoin, right? But the 40-year-olds like myself, they get it. So it might not happen in the next 5 or 10 years. But once, you know, once the baton starts getting handed over, Bitcoin makes more and more sense. And while the old system that's stagnant and dying and there's no growth to be seen, there's no even hope of future growth. Like the great financial crisis, people could look to China and be like, China is going to save us, right? China is actually going to continue to grow and pull the world economy out of the dumps. Well, what do we, what do we see now? China's not going to save us. Japan's not going to save us. We have war breaking out all over the world. We have people thinking Western civilization is dying. Like what kind of future is that to look forward to? It's horrible. It's a stagnant, stinky mess. It's rotting. It's rotting meat. How could anybody look at that system and be positive, be optimistic about the future? So what does that do? It pushes more people into safe and liquid assets, lower interest rates, lower growth, lower dynamism, and as we have an economy with lower growth, low inflation, low dynamism, low excitement, low everything, that creates people to have literal depression. You know, our, my generation, so I'm 41, my generation, uh, we kind of caught a little bit, I would say, maybe the last vestiges of some good economy, but really from after the dot-com bubble to today, it's been kind of fake growth and just uh, leverage growth and not actual economic growth. 
And a lot, I mean, starting with my generation and younger, everybody's depressed. How do you look forward into the future and see a bright, something good for you, for your family, your kids, your grandkids, whatever? No, you're going to latch on to things like Bitcoin because Bitcoin is bright. Bitcoin is the light at the end of the tunnel. It's the lifeboat. In a deflationary, <laughs> in a deflationary lake of depression, Bitcoin is the lifeboat. So that is, I got here by going on a big tangent from what you said of the whole system seems fake. And I would say, yeah, it, it's fake, but because it's stagnant and dying. Um, anyway, no, I, I appreciate the answer, and um, and. And I'll be honest with you, like, you know, I'm in the same age group and uh, uh, and Bitcoin does does force us to search for productive yield. And, um, you know, I lived mm. for a long time watching everyone around me, you know, just making insane amounts of money off these crazy investments that largely didn't make money. Never made sense to me. And I thought they knew something I didn't know um, until I studied Bitcoin and realized, you know, uh, Oh, you know, this is why things are going the way they are because uh, you know mm. you've broken thermodynamic laws. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for the future, and I think uh, the future for for this country, for America, um, the, the way we get out of this is by finding productive yield and and getting back to that. So, anyways, I appreciate your answer. Thank you, Ansel. Awesome. I think that was really great points. All right. Well, um, not going to take another comment. We've been going here for an hour, so I'm going to cut it there, guys. Thanks for joining. Check out bitcoinandmarkets.com. Guys on the podcast app, check out the telegram, t.me for slash Bitcoin and Markets. And that's it, guys. Have a great rest of your day. Bye.